Hey, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I love hearing people's stories. If I meet somebody for the first time or catch up with them, I love to, in, in, somewhere in the conversation, to say, tell me your story. Tell me about your life. Tell me what's going on. And uh, even it, it, people I don't know, to read their biographies, I'm just fascinated by the stories of people. And the older I get, to see how the different events of their life culminate to make them into the person that they are. There's a lot of value for you and I in studying different characters of history. There's a lot of value in hearing and getting to know each other by our stories and to see people in their environment, to see the influences that shape them, to see the struggles, the heartaches, the heartbreaks, the flaws, the attributes, the victories and the defeats. It, it's, it's encouraging and it's helpful to, to see how uh, God works in and through people uh, through the years and in their lives. And it provides for us valuable life lessons. Now, let me share with you just a couple of people that you may have heard about from uh, Biography Online is, is where I found this. Uh, the first is a, a lady by the name of Norma Jean Mortensen. I don't know if you ever heard of Norma Jean Mortensen. You may know her by her stage name, Marilyn Monroe. You may have heard of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, amen to Marilyn Monroe. Have I heard of that? Heard of her? Am I showing my age here? Well, here's what it says on Biography Online about Marilyn Monroe. Although Marilyn Monroe cultivated an image of the, quote, dumb blonde, in fact, her image and persona was something she took care to cultivate and develop through the media and through the strength of her acting. Although many were dismissive at the time, she took on the powerful Hollywood studio system and against expectations developed her acting career with her own intentions. But behind her confident public persona, she struggled with relationships and resorted to heavy drug usage, which had damaging impact on both her mental and physical health. In one sense, Monroe lived the American dream, rising from anonymity to become a famous actress. But on the other hand, it was a dream tinged with sadness, for fame did not bring peace of mind or happiness. She died of a drug overdose in 1962 at the age of 36. So in looking at the life of Marilyn Monroe, there's no doubt several life lessons we can glean from it. We don't have time to go into those this morning, but certainly as a celebrity life worth studying, hers is certainly one. Another celebrity that you may have heard of uh, that we could learn some things from, uh, from Biography Online, uh, is, is a man who was born Cassius Clay, otherwise known as Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali an Olympic and world champion boxer, had a unique personality based on his self-belief and strong religious and political convictions. His actions in refusing military service made him a lightning rod for controversy, turning the outspoken and popular champion into one of the era's most recognizable and controversial figures. In 1999, Ali was crowned Sportsman of the Century by Sports Illustrated. He won the heavyweight boxing championship three times, and won the North American Boxing Federation Championship, as well as an Olympic gold medal. He died in 2016 at the age of 74. There's a lot to learn by looking at the life of someone like Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali. There's a lot to learn from looking at each other's lives. There's a lot to learn from looking at the lives that we see recorded in the pages of Scripture. And today we begin a series of messages, or continue, I should say, a series of messages about David from the Old Testament. 
And uh, here you'll see a picture of David sculpted by Michelangelo. And uh, certainly he didn't know exactly what David looked like, but this is a famous sculpture of, uh, of David. Now, over the next several weeks, throughout the summer, we're going to be looking at David, who he is. We're going to be looking at his environment that he was brought up in. We're going to look and see the influences that shaped him. We're going to see the struggles and the heartaches and the victories and the defeats that he went through. We're going to see the hand of God in and upon the life of David. And we're going to learn life lessons that David exemplifies and that we can take and apply to our own lives, hopefully to gain the positive lessons and avoid the negative lessons so that we might be closer to God and the people that he would have us to be. We're going to learn lessons about faith in the real world. That's the series of messages I'm calling Faith in the Real World. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not looking for some religious faith. I'm not looking for a Sunday faith. I'm not looking for a high and holy faith that, that's only good in certain circumstances. I want a faith that's going to be with me in the difficulties of life. I want a faith that's going to carry me through the struggles that I face. I want a faith that I can depend upon when the bottom gets yanked out from under me and the whole world seems to be falling apart around me. And that's exactly the faith that the Scripture gives us, and it's the faith that we see exemplified in David. And so there's a lot of lessons that we're going to be learning over the next several weeks. Let me invite you to stand with me for just a moment. We're going to read three verses of Scripture this morning that, that kind of talk about the life of David. We're going to do more of an overview of his life today, and then we're going to circle back around in the weeks to come looking at specific instances of his life and gaining some lessons there. But today, we're going to look at three Bible verses. The first is 1 Samuel 13, verse number 14, and it says this, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now, if you've never heard this before, I'll share it with you now. And if you have heard it by way of a reminder, David is best known through the pages of Scripture as a man after God's own heart. Now, if he's a man after God's own heart, I want to find out what's going on so I can apply that to my life as well. In the New Testament, looking back at the life of David in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, it quotes God as saying, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. Doing the will of God, we see, is one of the qualities of being a man or a woman after the very heart of God. And one more verse of Scripture that we shared last week, and it kind of, kind of uh, builds into this series as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. I want you to read this with me out loud. The words are on the screen. And it refers to the people, the men and women of the Old Testament and what that means for us as we look back upon their lives. Would you read it out loud with me? These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So we think about the example and the instruction with the life of David and the, and the life of many others that we see in the Scripture. And our Heavenly Father, yet again we pray during this worship service, and we ask you to inform our minds and speak to our hearts that we might determine to be, not like David, but to be men and women, boys and girls, young people and senior adults, after the very heart of God. May it be so. May we take even a step closer today as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated.
So if you want to read about David, one of the most well-documented lives of anyone in Scripture, if you want to read these stories or read about his life, you would read in First and Second Samuel, you'd read in First and Second Chronicles, I believe only First Kings, you'd read in, the, in many other passages uh, in the Psalms, and really throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see his name referenced many, many different times. Now David, as a name, his name means literally favorite or beloved. Beloved, no doubt, by his father Jesse, but beloved also by God. He was the first king to unite all of Israel. Israel was broken into basically the 12 tribes, and, and the northern tribes united as Israel, the southern united as Judah. David was the first king to unite all of Israel together uh, in one kingdom. He was the first king to receive the promise from God that out of his lineage would come a Messiah. And so that's important as well. He's pictured throughout Scripture as the ideal king, one who other kings and other leaders should emulate in their rule and in their reign, in their power. Now David was brought to power about the year 1000 B.C., and he ruled for about 40 years, from the age of 30 to the age of 70. So why study the life of David? Why take these weeks and, and why invest our time as we gather each week to focus on his life? Well, there, there are, uh, it's a different history than what we had. He lived in a different era, in a different time, in a different part of the world. Technology was different. Life was different. But there are many commonalities of the life of David with you and I today. That's why I'm calling this message a common life. Differences, yes, many, but a common life in that who, who our makeup is and what our purpose is and how God wants to interact with us in our lives. And so he shares with us an example, and he gives to us an instruction, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10.11, an example and an instruction. Now, I want to point out several things for you today uh, about the common life that we share with David. For example, we all have an ancestry. We all have ancestors. We all have those that, that, that came before us that brought us to be who we are today, for better or for worse. We all have a family tree. Now, there's some in our family tree that we're proud of. I've been noticing uh, recently on social media lots of pictures of the prom, lots of pictures of graduations, lots of pictures of, of, of weddings and, and, and uh, things like that. And so, so there's always those family members that we're proud of, they've achieved something, uh, they, they've done something noteworthy, and we celebrate that not just on social media, but, but socially around the table or in our homes. We, we celebrate uh, those family members. Then there's always those crazy family members, amen? Those crazy ones. Now, now I only say this, I brought it up last week, I'll say it again today, as a public service announcement, and that is, if you don't know who the crazy family member is in your family, it might be, it probably is you, as a matter of fact, if you don't know... Who it is. Well, think with me about David's ancestry. We spent a whole sermon last week talking about David's ancestry because it's important. It's important to God. It's so important to God that he put a whole book of the Bible, the book of Ruth, in the Old Testament to, to show us the foundation of the family of David so that we could better understand him and then going forward even to better understand our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus thinking about the family line of David. His great-great-grandfather uh, was Boaz, 
And I said his great-grandfather was Boaz, and his great-grandmother was Ruth, about whom the book of Ruth was written. Boaz was the son of Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute of Jericho that we read about back when, when the Israelites were first coming into the promised land that God had given them. So, so David's great-great-grandmother had been a prostitute. Her son, Boaz, married a girl from, let's just say, across the tracks, if we can. She was from the other side of the river, from another, a neighboring country, the Moabites. And so, so that's where Ruth came from. And out of that lineage, out of that family ancestry, came about, after a couple of generations, David, the great king, that we read about in the Old Testament. Why is that significant? Because it points out to us that God can take anybody and do anything. That needs to sink in to us. God can take anybody and he can do anything. Just because you or I may have prominence means nothing to God. He doesn't need us to do anything. And just because we might think we're the least of the least and the most unqualified to do anything... That doesn't disqualify us from service in God's kingdom. He can pluck a little shepherd boy out of a field and rise him up to be the, the descendant, the, the ancestor of the Messiah and the greatest king that, to rule in Israel. That's what God can do. And if God can do that in David's life, listen to me, he can do that in your life. It doesn't mean that all of us are destined to be kings, but it does mean that God can take any of us and accomplish his good and his perfect will. See, our ancestry molds us and shapes us in ways that we see and in ways that we don't see. And only by getting a little age do we come to understand exactly how that works. I've heard this quote before, but I've recently seen it exemplified. I've heard that in every family, there's a slave. In every family history, there's a slave. And in every family history, there's a king. Now think about that. I was watching one of my favorite shows on TV. It's called Finding Your Roots. It's on PBS. I DVR it and watch it all I possibly can because it takes well-known people and it traces their ancestry, and it's phenomenal. One of the ones I saw in there recently is one of my favorite former NFL football players, Michael Strahan. Very personable guy. He's on TV a lot. Michael Strahan was on Finding Your Roots, and they went back and, and they discovered that on one side of his family... Uh, his black ancestors here in America were slaves. On the white side of his family, there was European royalty. Take about 30 seconds and watch how it came about on, on the show. For Michael, one branch was especially surprising. Through his white ancestry, we discovered that his roots traced back to several of the kings of England and to a man who once ruled almost all of Europe. You're descended from Charlemagne. Royalty, I'm a king, y'all. <laughs> Charlemagne is your 39th great-grandfather. What? <laughs> what? So, tell them what you'll find. Now, uh, uh, for, for Christmas last year, I asked for the, my DNA checked. Because I've been told all kinds of things about my family. It turns out all of them were wrong. Uh, basically, about, about my family based on DNA. But anyway, uh, our ancestry impacts us. But understand this, it doesn't have to define us as who we are. Just because you come from well-known, prominent people doesn't mean you'll continue that. And just because you come from, from less than doesn't mean that you have to stay there. That's the beauty, not just of our country, but the beauty of who God is and what he can do. 
Now, like David, we have an ancestor, but also like David, we have occupations. We have things that we do that define who we are. For some, it's working in an office. For some, it's working in a store or a factory. For some, it's a blue-collar job, or for others, a white-collar job. For some, it's being a student. For some, it's staying at home. For, for some, it's being retired. What, whatever it is, our occupation has a way of identifying who we are. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but I know for guys, this often happens. You meet somebody for the first time, and you're chatting back and forth, and you ask some, some pretty basic questions. Where are you from? About your family? And this question, guys, always comes up with us. It's this, what do you do? Don't we do that? So what do you do? And then it, we tell what our job is, what our occupation is. And it's important because our occupation often identifies at least partly who we are and, uh, and what our makeup is. For David, his occupation was being a shepherd. He was brought up being a shepherd in his family, carrying out the family business. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting at verse 34, David says to Saul, now Saul at the time is the king. David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. He says, so Saul says to David, who are you? What do you do? What's going on? And David says, I, I'm a shepherd. I've kept the sheep for my father. Well, well, what does it mean to be a shepherd in Israel in that time? It means, first of all, that you live with your sheep. It means that you carry your sheep out so that they can grow, so they can, can live, so they can fatten up, so they can grow their wool. It means that, that you lead them so they might have food, they might have water, they might have shelter, they might have protection. Because in those days, like any day, out in the woods or out in the, in the wilderness, different areas, there are predators that would prey on sheep. In fact, David goes on to tell Saul this. He says, I, I, was, I was a, a shepherd for my father, and when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. When, when, a, when a predator came and took one of my lambs, I went and I hid it so that it would drop the lamb and scare it off. And then he said this, and if it arose against me, he's talking about a lion or a bear. He said, now if that lion or bear turned on me, this is what David is saying, he said this, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. David was tough. We think about David, you know, just being this little scrawny little kid out in the field. He was tough because in that day you had to be tough to be a shepherd and take care of the sheep. And it reminds me, this story reminds me of this, that our occupation often serves for preparation for what's coming later in life. Even the most insignificant of things can be preparation for what's happening later. Later on in, in his occupation, David was known as a mighty warrior and, and, and a, a soldier. He killed Goliath. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. He killed thousands of, of others of the enemies. He rose through the ranks. He enlisted a group called the Mighty Men, and he was known to have a fearless reputation as a soldier. All these things about David's occupation. Like David, we have occupations. And like David, even the most insignificant parts of who we are can be defined by what we do. And what we do is often, if not always, preparation for what's coming next. So think about that, how God might use your occupation. Then also, we, we understand like David, we all have gifts and abilities, things we can do, things we, we're naturally good at, what, things that we're, that we're gifted at, some skills that we acquire over time. If you think about David or know anything about him, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, David was a poet. 
This shepherd soldier had a tender heart. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a songwriter. He was a psalmist. If you don't know what a psalmist is, it's a writer of psalms. And we know there's a book of psalms in the Old Testament. We know that it served as, as worship music for the church of the day. But, but what exactly are the psalms? It's these collection of 150 or so combination of different writings. They're poems. They're songs. They're testimonies of God's goodness. They're psalms of lament where the, the writer is crying out to God, saying, God, how long am I going to be stuck in this situation before you reach down and deliver me? There are, there are psalms of history, psalms of praise, psalms of worship, psalms of telling stories. And of these psalms, there are 150 of them in the Old Testament. Of those, 75 are named, as, David is named as the writer of half of those, 75 and is believed to be the writer of several others as well. One commentator said this about David writing psalms. David's psalms express a heart devoted to God. Think about this, the man after God's own heart. A heart devoted to God. His music comforted King Saul, influenced his nation, and continues to change lives even today. Maybe the most well-known of the psalms of David is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Isn't that a beautiful psalm? I can't tell you how many times I've used that to comfort a family in difficulty, to bring encouragement to, a, to, a, to, to some folks. I, I can't tell you, Al, just a couple weeks ago, we experienced Psalm 23 musically, and uh, we look forward to doing that again sometime. Al and I have been working together on getting somebody else besides me to sing that. But, uh, but what, a, what a beautiful song that is. And so it begs the question, what are my skills? What are, what are my gifts? What are my abilities? I may not be a, a poet. I may not be a songwriter. But, man, there's something God has gifted me to do and something God has gifted you to do. What is it and how can God use it in our lives? I want you to notice also that, like David, we're all impacted by politics. Everybody say, ugh, at the same time, ugh. We're all impacted by politics. Now, Historically, we see people are impacted, and even in the days of David. There is local politics, there are state politics, there's national politics. And concerning politics, you, you may have a party or a candidate that you support. You may hopefully get out and vote, and uh, you may even be compelled to run for office. Uh, Al was telling me he's running before too long, uh, running for the county line, I believe, is what he said <laughs> he was going to be doing. But, uh, uh, but running, being involved, and being impacted by Politics. Well, David, this young shepherd boy, while he was still a shepherd boy, was anointed to be the king over Israel. And the problem was there at the time, there already was a king, King Saul. And Saul became very jealous of David for two reasons. One is Saul was told and realized that God's hand had been taken off of him. God brought him in as king, and then Saul disobeyed, and God took his hand off of Saul and God put his hand on David, and Saul knew it, and Saul was out trying to kill David. David became a king in waiting on the run. And there were two different occasions, and we perhaps we'll talk about these, where David had an opportunity to legitimately kill Saul and take over being the king on the spot, but both times David declined. He said, I will not touch God's anointed, even knowing all the circumstances. David was faithful not to do that. 
And so, so we see here that, that, that uh, politics were there. After Saul died, David was crowned the king. And, and as king, David got involved, as, as he couldn't help it, in all kinds of politics from other nations, from the rulers of his own country, even within his own family. There were all kinds of rivalries and jealousies and, and alliances, and it was just crazy. It was like today, only more brutal, if you can imagine. Well, David reigned for 40 years. And politics had an impact on his life and on his family. And the politics of David continue to be impacting upon us even today. And it's just a reminder, we all live under authority. We all live in, in, in a land of laws. And, and in our country, presidents and congress and governors and senators and all the groups that go with that. And, and we are influenced by, but we also have an opportunity to influence those around us in our government by our prayers and by our action. We can be involved in politics. Another thing we can do that, that reminds us that we are like David is that we all have family. We all have family of some kind. And, and David, as we read about in the scripture, David was a son, David was a husband, and David was a father. The Bible reports that David was married to different women all at the same time. I don't know if you knew that or not. David was married to different women all at the same time, having children with each. If you were to read the first part of 1 Chronicles chapter 3, you'd find that listed by name are seven wives and 11 children, all named and all the offspring of David and his different wives. Now, he also had royal concubines, or what we might call a harem. And uh, these other uh, uh, members of the harem or concubines also produced offspring for David. And so he had, I don't know how many children uh, running around. Now, let's think about this. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was married multiple times at the same time. How does that jive? Well, plural marriage like this was practiced throughout, it's been practiced throughout history, many different cultures. It was practiced in the culture in which David was born. Some of the reasons are personal, some are political, some are religious, and some are just very practical. And there are even plural marriages that are listed in the pages of the Scripture among some of those in the faith. For example, Jacob had multiple wives. David had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple wives. And others did as well. So what are we to make of this? Well, here's what I make of this and what, other commenta what commentators have made of this. And that is that plural marriage is in Scripture, but it's never taught in Scripture. We're never taught in Scripture to have more than one spouse at a time. Plural marriage is never condoned in Scripture. There's not one instance with David where God says, You see all those wives he's got? That makes him a man after my own heart. There's nowhere where Solomon had all of his wives and concubines and, and porcupines and everything else that Solomon had. There's nowhere in Scripture where God says, This makes you a more godly man. In fact, Scripture always shows, always shows the negative consequences of any intimate relationship outside of God's plan for marriage, including plural marriage. One man, one woman married to each other. If you don't have that, if you step outside of that, you easily have jealousy, rivalry, skirmishes within the family. And somewhere God is saying to those circumstances, See, I told you so. It works when you do it and follow the directions. If you get away from the directions, guess what happens? It can all fall apart. David experienced that and many others as well. 
For David, these, these plural marriages brought about distant parenting. It brought about rivalries and jealousies. It brought about, even among his children, sins against each other of a sexual nature and of even murdering each other uh, among his own family. And a lot of that results back to uh, the family situation that David was in. And all that means, brings me to the next point, and that is that just like David, we have a common life in that just like David, we're all guilty of sin. All of us. The Bible says in Romans 3 and verse 10, there's none who is righteous. No, not one. And be careful when you start pointing fingers at other people. You've heard many people say this in the past because every finger you point at somebody else, there's three pointing right back at you. Be very careful in, in exposing and pointing out and talking about others. We're all guilty of sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That includes David. That includes this great king that we're looking at, this great personality that, that we're beginning to explore. Uh, David uh, ha has, of all his sins, and they were many, there are four noteworthy sins that commentators typically point out about David. I'm, I'm going to give them to you real quickly. One is the discipline of his children. He failed to discipline his children. Discipline being everything from spending time with them, training them, pointing them to the Lord, teaching them how to interact with each other, preparing them for their adult lives. All these things seem to be missing from the life of David. These multiple marriages took a toll. The rivalries between you're the child of this wife and you're the child of that wife and the rivalries and jealousies set in and they really impacted uh, David's family in many different ways. There was, there was even rape committed from, from the son of one wife against the daughter of another wife. There were murder committed between the son of this wife and the, the son of that wife. And so all of these happened. And guess what happened? Even in those egregious circumstances, David did nothing. And so we'll talk about that as we go along. But, but, but discipline uh, was, was an area of sin in his life. Another area that is pointed to is the sin of adultery. Now we tend to think about David being married to all these different women at the same time and having these concubines, uh, certainly being sexual sin against God. Absolutely it was. But, but the sin of adultery is pointed out primarily uh, with one person. And you may know the story, the story of David and Bathsheba. David had all these wives and all these concubines. Why would he go after the wife of somebody else? I'm going to give you the answer. We're all guilty of sin. Sin. The bottom line answer. Why did David do that? It was sin. That brings us to the third of David's sins, and that is the sin of murder. When David had had his relations with Bathsheba, she was found to be pregnant. She sent him a note. David said, oh, no, we've got to cover this up. And the end result of that was having Uriah the Hittite, the, wife of the husband of Bathsheba, David had him killed to cover up his own sin. And then the fourth sin, we don't think about it a whole lot, but, but it is a sin mentioned uh, prominently in the Scripture. That is uh, the sin of disobedience. David took a census of the people. He counted the people in the country against what God said. It may seem like no big deal, but it was a, a, a egregious disobedience towards God. Like David, we all are guilty of sin. 
we don't have to look too far to realize there's a lot of, there's a lot of carryover from, from David to us. None of us are perfect parents. None of us had perfect parents. None of us are ever going to be perfect parents. We've all blown it in disciplining our children, and, and I'm, I'm exhibit A, number one. So I, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with us. <laughs> you may say, well, Pastor Mark, I've never committed adultery. Good for you. Except Jesus kind of threw a wrench in that. When he said, if you've looked at a woman or if you're a lady, if you looked at a man with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already with him in your heart. Remember, we want to be a man, a woman after God's own heart. We've sinned in that way. We've all sinned murderously. We may not have taken a physical life, but we've all been so angry at somebody over something. We've all disobeyed God in some way. That's just four examples of many in all of our lives. We are all guilty of sin. But the, the good news, and I'll, I'll end on this one, and that is that we all can be forgiven. Like David, we can all, every one of us, be forgiven of our sins. Aren't you thankful we can be forgiven of our sins? In the book of 1 John, verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, if we come clean before God, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's two connotations here about forgiveness. On the one hand, when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive a, a legal term that means wiping the record clean even though you're guilty. You stand before the judge and you're guilty, but somehow, some way, the judge is willing to take it off your record and put you and send you on your way. That's a picture of being cleansed from sin. Even though we've committed it, because of Jesus, our sins have been taken away from our record. We no longer appear before God as a sinner. And then the word to cleanse is a medical term. It's a picture of having, if you will, a, a tumor, a sin tumor in your heart. And God comes in through Jesus and He takes that sin tumor and He removes it like an operation. He removes it out of our body. So legally, we're cleared. Medically, we're cleared. We're now standing before God because we've confessed our sins and He has forgiven us and cleansed us and it is now as if we had never sinned. That's the beauty of forgiveness. After David had been caught in his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. He pours out his heart to God. And in Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2, David cries out to God like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Oh God, I have sinned and I'm coming to you for forgiveness. That's part of what makes David a man after God's own heart. Because you see, in spite of the terrible sin with Bathsheba and others, God still called David a man after his own heart. 1 Samuel 3, 14, 13, 14, we just mentioned that a minute ago. One commentator said it this way. When David sinned, he always repented and turned to God. Every time he's confronted with his sin, he turns to God. He completely committed himself to the will of God. And as God's beloved, God used him for the sake of Israel. And therefore, David could boast that he stood, quote, blameless before God. And that's why it says in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 22, after removing Saul, God made David their king 
And he testified concerning him, David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now think about this. To have a heart after God is not to have a heart like God's heart. Nobody can have a heart like God. But what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? It doesn't mean that we have a heart the same as God's, but that our heart is pursuing God's heart. Our heart is chasing after God's heart. Our heart prioritizes God over everything else so that when we're confronted with sin, we're quick to turn and repent. When we're shown the way that God wants us to go, we're quick to follow it. When there are choices between what God wants and what we want, we're quick to choose God's way. That's what it means to be a person Chasing after God, which is a person after God's own heart. So now, thinking about as we conclude our message this morning, David left a legacy never to be forgotten. Never to be forgotten. Recorded throughout the pages of Scripture, recorded throughout history, even down until today. He's a great example in some ways of how to live our lives. He's a great example in other ways of how not to live our lives. We would be wise to look at both of those and to apply those life lessons to us to have a faith in the real world. He was a model for Israelite kings. He was called the man of God. Prophets in the Old Testament pointed to a future David who would come, the Messiah from the line of David. The New Testament tells us that Jesus identifies as the son of David. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He's known as the Son of God, and both of those are true. But if you look at the very beginning of the life of Jesus on this earth, in Matthew 1 and verse 1, it says, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David. The first introduction in the book of Matthew to Jesus is as the Son of David, the the Messiah, the one who has come to to bring salvation to the people uh, who would turn to him. And all the way at the end of the Bible, at the book of Revelation... Chapter 22 and verse 16, Jesus is speaking and Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. That's quite an impact, isn't it? That Jesus, the Messiah, comes from that lineage and identifies himself as the son of David. There there are 12 times in the Gospels that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great roll call of faith, Jesus, I mean not Jesus, but David is listed in the roll call there of faith. And so when we look at the life of David over the coming weeks, we're going to look at a life that gives us lots of lessons to follow for the glory of God. And so it's a life lesson that reminds us that God takes us from where we are and puts us where he wants us to be, that we might know him, that we might be useful to him, and that we might live lives for his glory. We're reminded that no matter what our background is, no matter where you've come from or who you are, what your family history is, what what your circumstances are, if you're willing to pursue God, he can use you in phenomenal ways starting right now today. That's the great hope that we have. There are no excuses for us not to follow him wholeheartedly. So let me ask you this morning, what's holding you back? What's standing in your way of following after the things of God with all your heart and pursuing God the way he wants you to? What's standing in your way of filling in that blank at the bottom of your listening guide? I will be a man. I will be a woman. I'll be a teenager. I'll be a child, I'll be a husband, I'll be a wife, I'll be a a worker, I'll be a a team member, I'll be whatever you are after God's own heart. I'm going to prioritize Him over everything. What's holding you back from that? 
And I'll promise you right now that when it's all said and done, anything that's standing in the way of you saying that is secondary. It's secondary to what's most important. You know who's most important? Jesus is most important.